Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. This episode, Sandman number 19, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Cover date, September 1990. Art by Charles Vess. Colored by Steve Olaf. Lettered by Todd Klein. Assistant editor, Tom Payer. Editor, Karen Berger. So we're here, Brent, and uh, this is huge. This is a pretty big deal. I've I've been waiting, and probably listeners have been waiting for us to get to this moment. This issue won the World Fantasy Award in 1991, though that started a pretty big controversy. Uh, and in fact, that win and and this issue then are I think considered to be important in legitimizing comics as a type, as a form of literature, which is is something that we're going to keep encountering. Is, is certainly in the introductions to Sandman volumes as we go. And I think even just the legitimacy of of speculative fiction as literature is something that we've already been encountering in Gaiman's work, both in the Sandman and in some of the short stories that we've looked at. And I I do think that it will be worth us talking about this issue's importance, its significance, and and also that controversy. Uh, But I think probably it'll be better to do that in our wrap-up episode for Dream Country rather than here at the top of this show, since we haven't even gone through the the issue yet. And I thought we might actually start this episode by uh, just talking about our personal histories with Shakespeare, what our background is with Shakespeare before we get into it. Well, as you know, Glenn, um, you were Shakespeare's uh, child and you were taken uh, at <laughs> a young age um, to the fairyland um, when – no. Um, <laughs> I mean, you don't know. You don't know that that's not true. I think we probably both encountered Shakespeare around the same time. Um uh, I think we probably encountered bits and pieces as everyone does as they go through Western pop culture. But I don't think we – probably the both – the time we were both – kind of uh, actually assigned to read at least excerpts from a play was uh, at O'Neill Junior High School, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, Although I I had seen in sixth grade, and I actually wondered, uh, you and I went to sixth grade uh, at different schools. I I couldn't remember if your school was with us on this field trip or if it was one that only my school took, but we went to Drury Lane and saw a production of Hamlet in sixth grade. So that was my first experience with Shakespeare, and I, I loved it at the time. You know, I don't know that we saw Hamlet, but I think we did see some presentation at Drury Lane Theater um, of something around that time. Um, that sounds right. Yeah, so it must have been different field trips, but something the whole school district was doing, if not uh, in the, the, uh, every school sort of all at once. But yeah, then we, of course, had we had Shakespeare in, in school. Uh, and you and I spent uh, much of our adolescence when we were not reading Sandman, uh, watching on repeat, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Uh, that and the many Kenneth Branagh adaptations of Shakespeare that were available at that time. Yes, absolutely. I, w- I was obsessed with uh, his Henry V. And actually, I was especially obsessed with the Patrick Doyle score to that film, which I am still obsessed with and was jamming out to early this morning to, to get in the mood, even though that is not actually at all the mood of either A Midsummer Night's Dream, the play, or A Midsummer Night's Dream, the uh, the comic book issue. But still, I love I love that score. Sadly, I think we'll need to table for now either of us doing our version of the St. Crispin's Day speech. So, uh, <laughs> yes. dear, dear listener, uh, look forward to that in a future episode um, that probably will not be part of the main Sandman run. 
Well, listeners can and perhaps already have heard me do it because Valerie and I have done it on Star Trek, but uh, we should we should alert listeners now. You and I are going to do a scene <laughs> together uh, later in this episode. So I, I'm wondering, you know, so I will say I'm, I am a pretty big Shakespeare fan. And in fact, after seeing that production of Hamlet in sixth grade, I got super into it. I, I had gotten a, um, uh, a hardcover complete works that I still have is actually now up in my, my baby's bedroom uh, since I no longer have need of it because I have uh, better volumes now down here in the uh, the recording studio. Uh, it tried very hard to get my family to uh, not go to the Wisconsin Dells for summer vacation that year, but instead to go to uh, Stratford, Ontario, to the, uh, the the famous Shakespeare Festival there that is uh, um, the backdrop of uh, the great TV show that you and I both love, Slings and Arrows. And uh, I've been a big Shakespeare buff ever since. I have seen... Uh, at least three productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Have have you seen this staged live before? I actually saw it outside of Madison, Wisconsin, um, at an outdoor uh, theater um, one summer when I was a student at University of Wisconsin. I got to see it uh, performed and also see it performed uh, in a fun outside environment. Uh, There were a fair number of mosquitoes that tried to disrupt (laughs) the event for me, um, but it was kind of nice to see it surrounded by kind of forests unto itself. So the players literally emerged from the wood to have their interactions there in the wood. So I really liked that particular staging of it. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about it before. I mean, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream is is one of the most produced of Shakespeare plays. It's also one that's frequently assigned in schools. It, it's been considered because it deals with fairies. I guess it's been considered to be for kids, though no Shakespeare is actually for kids in that way. I mean, this is uh, uh, this play is uh, a romantic comedy and is all about mixed up identities or, or or mixed up affections, maybe we should say, and and some sexual antics uh, with a donkey. So, you know, uh, maybe yeah. not actually for kids, but it's got fairies, so it's for kids. So that's one of the reasons it's it's much produced. But I, I have to think that another one that hadn't occurred to me until just now is that because it's pastoral, because it's outside and so much in America, at least, or North America, maybe I should say, uh, Shakespeare festivals, outdoor Shakespeare festivals, Shakespeare in this or that park uh, is a huge part of uh, of where Shakespeare lives here for us in North America. And this play is designed for that. And Gaiman is going to pick that up and run with it. Because yeah, two of the three productions of this I've seen have also been outside. And this play in particular, Glenn, Midsummer Night's Dream, I think is oftentimes the kind of entry play for Shakespeare for that purpose, in that it is a comedy. And it is um, not one of his long kind of you know tragic and also epically long plays it's 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 a particularly shorter one and um lots of funny bits and there's a number of kind of bits going on and sometimes in normal shakespeare fashion until you get the rhythm of the language it can be difficult to catch what all is going on but there's a lot of kind of visual humor and other things going on as well which i think work well particularly for doing an adaptation in comics form, um, but also as an entry point for uh, particularly younger audiences, but even anyone who is um, just when they think of Shakespeare, they think of Macbeth or Hamlet or anything. It's just like, mm, this is something that's a little in- easier to enter on. Um, Romeo and Juliet also, I think, is easier to understand and is written kind of more for almost, you know, I don't mean this disparagingly, but juvenile audience. Um, but 
that's obviously a tragedy and there's not much that's comic in that play relative to, um, uh, and even some of the comedy in that I think kind of feels even out of place depending on how it is staged. Um, but Midsummer Night's Dream works as a comedy. Um, there are lots of darker elements, but the darker elements tend to be muted. I think you have to really work to actually bring them to the fore as opposed to them just being kind of the background of what's going on. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, right? That for an audience whose first Shakespeare play, this is going to be a young audience who don't know what to expect or having to adjust to the language and and may have just never even seen any play at all live before, you know, in addition to not having seen or been, you know, exposed to any kind of Shakespeare before too. All of that's going to be something you're going to get on a on a rewatch, which I think we can say for so many Disney cartoons as well. Like how many <laughs> jokes are in there for the parents, right, and not for the not for the kids. So that's yeah, that's a great observation. So it is a it is a great play. Uh, it is it's not in my Shakespeare top ten, but it is a great play. It is, as I said, it's one I've seen a number of times, and so it's, it's a lot of fun. And I think this is a great issue. I am curious too, Brent. What did you do to prepare for this issue? Did you uh, did you read the text of of, of Midsummer again, or did you watch a, a film or some kind of recorded stage performance? Or are you just winging it today? I'm mostly just winging it. I did stumble upon on Amazon an adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream that was done um, not within the last decade on BBC, where it was one of those kind of updated for its time. Um, and so Theseus had very kind of fascist banners hanging around him. And it was oh. just – it was really – I think not good. Um, I only got about three minutes in and I mainly was confused because the descriptor of what it was about did not match either the thumbnail picture, um, which was of someone in a donkey's head, um, uh, nor what I recollect of the play. Cause I tend to, when I think about the play that, you know, there's lots of different layers of story going on and I tend to only remember the bit that's going on with the, you know, the four, young would be lovers in the woods. And I tend to remember what's going on with the fairies and the interactions with the like theater troupe. I tend to completely forget the outer framing structure of, Oh, right. This is supposed to be Athens. Um, and so it's supposed to be Athens in a, I'm guessing bank in Britain um, <laughs> just kind of threw me off. Uh, but I did spend quite a bit of time um, working my way through um, the many annota- annotations that the annotated Sandman by Leslie Klinger has at this point. Also um, there is um, a, kind of extended interview um, that High Bender did with Neil Gaiman for his Sandman Companion book, which I usually spend time with both of these texts, but usually there's about a third or a quarter as many things to read as there were in this case. Um, I also spent a lot of time thinking about Stardust, in mm-hmm. part because Charles Vess, who does the art for this issue of Sandman, did the art for the original comics, um, and the often is included in the reprints of Stardust. There is, you can get Stardust with where it's just text and doesn't include any of the images, but the original release of it was in for prestige, slightly prestige um, sliced comics um, with Charles Vest doing kind of art in the margins. And so his style reminded me of that throughout. So I, I very much was imagining myself partially that like, okay, we're dealing with what's going on here with, very kind, but just on the other side of the mound, I think 
the town of Wall might be, and from there you can journey somewhere else, um, was kind of how my brain was piecing it all together. What did you do to prepare? You probably meticulously read um, uh, the entire play. Um, you probably performed it some, I'm guessing. <laughs> yes, um, both of these things are true. <laughs> and uh, I'm assuming that maybe your son can now only go to sleep if he hears Puck uh, make his end monologue. Right. So you, you have completely read my mind here. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, so I did read the, the text of the play through a, a few times, and uh, if people are, are interested, I I was using the the Arden Shakespeare the the third series, so I did that, and uh, I also then uh, did a number of other things. They actually, the only thing I didn't do was watch a film or a stage performance. I was intending to, and in fact, I had seen uh, because we are in the midst of a pandemic. The the RSC, the the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, based in uh, uh, Stratford upon Avon, um, had made available. I mean, I think it was behind a paywall, but we happily would have paid it. Uh, but had made available a number of uh, recordings of productions going back several decades. Uh, but because I am a new dad, I just did not get time to uh, to actually get around to doing that. But because I am a new dad, what I did do was, well, one, read a lot of the dialogue to my baby as reading and did uh, did try to do various voices. Some of them he liked, some of them he, uh, he definitely had some notes for my acting performance <laughs> for. Um, but the other thing I did, it, it was a lot of fun. And it, these are just going to be two recommendations to, to listeners who might have kids of their own. I got some kids' versions of Shakespeare and and specifically of uh, of this play. But one thing that I got was a, a set that was not quite complete. I mean, the set I got was complete, but it was not quite every uh, every Shakespeare play. Uh, but uh, Andrew Matthews, uh, a, a writer, and then Tony Ross, an illustrator, have done a series of uh, Shakespeare stories for children, uh, published by uh, Orchard Books, and uh, got the whole set. Uh, we've actually read only A Midsummer Night's Dream, which I have read to him. Many Many times, uh, and then also we read Antony and Cleopatra randomly the other the other day. But you know they've got Hamlet, they've got the the Tempest, Richard the Third, R and J, Henry the Fifth. You know just about everything. Some of the histories I think are the ones that they did not do. I think they did every comedy and every tragedy and every uh, every romance, and uh, and that was a lot of fun. It was a you know not a particularly faithful adaptation, but you know kept me kept me kind of in the in the mode of it. Uh, and the other kids' book that I did is uh, a board book, so it's actually suitable for an eight month old, which is the, uh, the, the age that uh, my son is at right now, a board book in a, a series called Baby Lit that does color, really colorful, really beautiful adaptations of classic literature. Uh, I bought this one and, uh, you know, from Amazon, which then also said, suggested that I might like to get this one for the Odyssey. And wow, Amazon knows everything about me. They were right. So I got that <laughs> one too. Uh, and they're fun. This is uh, by Jennifer Adams. Uh, did the writing, the arts by Allison Oliver. And uh, it's called A Midsummer Night's Dream, colon, A Fairy's Primer. And so it is just bits of text uh, about uh, either dialogue from the fairies or uh, descriptors of the fairies with illustrations of fairies. And it's a, it's a lot of fun. In fact, for about the past month, this has been a go-to book for bedtime, uh, though that has that has stopped working now. He's no longer amused by the the fairy voices I do to sing their uh, their fairy roundel and uh, and so on. But uh, those were some of the things that I, I did. The other thing I want to make sure that I say is, uh, in fact, this is a question we get all the time as podcast host uh, running a big podcast network is, 
is, hey, what are some podcasts that you listen to that uh, I might also want to check out? We get that question every once in a while on the forum or uh, on email. And almost all of my favorite podcasts are Shakespeare podcasts. And I went back and listened to old episodes that uh, these shows have done about A Midsummer Night's Dream, kind of on repeat for the, the month or so that we had in between episodes here. And I just want to make sure I acknowledge who those people are. So the, the, the big one for me is uh, is Chop Bard, uh, C-H-O-P, Chop Bard, that is kind of what we do. It's, it's a solo host, but goes through Shakespeare plays, one or two, sometimes three scenes at a time, gives a lot of dialogue. The host, uh, Aaron, is an actor, and he is a great, he's a tremendous voice actor. I've never seen him perform on stage, but he's a tremendous voice actor in this podcast. Goes through, does bits of performance, explicates what's going on in the, in the text, offers some commentary. It's a really uh, fantastic show. He's been on the air for... I think 10 years. He's he's about, he's at least a third of the way through, if not halfway through the entire canon. It's all wonderful. Highly recommend Chop Bard, uh, the podcast. Uh, then there's also No Holds Bard, which is, you know, it's B-A-R-D, of course, <laughs> right? Uh, but it's a great, uh, great podcast, great title for a podcast that is also actor focused. It's uh, two actors who uh, knew each other from uh, the University of New Hampshire, where they were involved in Shakespeare there and have made uh, are making a living now doing something with Shakespeare. One's sort of managing the business side of uh, a theater company, and the other one is uh, doing a lot of directing and still some acting now. That that show is a lot of fun. It's it's pretty broy. I I will say they do a lot of games, a lot of gimmicks. Um, their their big thing with their show is to go to places on the internet, Reddit, and so on, and answer stupid homework questions from clueless teenagers. But it's a, it's a lot of fun. I highly recommend that show. And then the third show, and this will be the last one that I, I will plug here, is the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show, which is two people with academic credentials. Uh, one, a person working on a PhD, very nearly finished with her PhD, uh, and another person who has a couple of master's degrees in Shakespeare, but has gone into uh, secondary education and uh, and and actual like theater and an actual theater performance, and is actually really involved in a, a summer Shakespeare camp for kids. Uh, and the two of them having really academic, but then also sort of stage-focused conversations about Shakespeare as they go through each of the plays, doing a series of episodes on them, and also looking at Shakespeare's contemporaries as well, which is, I think, really awesome. If you're into uh, Shakespeare, if you're really into Shakespeare, I think knowing his contemporaries is also really important. So uh, that's the hurly-burly Shakespeare show. So those are the three shows I would recommend to people, and I'm really grateful. I've just listened to... It gave me something like 15 episodes to just listen to on repeat for the last month, and uh, it was really helpful. Well, and thanks for the recommendations. I've listened to Chop Bar before, and I'm a big, big fan of that podcast as well, but I had not listened to the other ones, so... Um uh, good for me to jot some of those down as well. <laughs> right. And well, clearly I'm not doing my job as a friend if I have not told you about the great Shakespeare <laughs> podcast I love. Uh, and, you know, reminder, hey, listeners, please tell your friends you love this show. <laughs> I mean, like, especially if you've got a co-host on another podcast, tell them about this podcast, please. I feel like a real jerk for not giving you these recommendations. So there have been times in our lives, of course, when we have a, when we have exchanged uh, podcast lists of podcast recommendations with each other. Well, that's been a, a lot of preamble before we, we get into it, uh, but I think let's do it. Let's get into the, the scene by scene here. So the, the issue opens with a scene of a, a caravan traveling along a road on the Sussex Downs in England. Uh, we'll have more on that later, uh, because what this establishing shot is really for is to let us know that this caravan is William Shakespeare's theater company, uh, though it is not technically 
His company, uh, that company is the famous uh, Lord Chamberlain's Men, which then later becomes the King's Men. That's a little bit later in his career. Uh, This is Lord Strang's Men. This is a company in which Shakespeare was principally an actor, uh, but is also where he got his start as a, a writer. And we're given a date here. And the date is June 23rd, 1593. And this year is absolutely right for what we are seeing here, this this caravan, this theater company out on the road, because London was struck by the plague in 1592. And so the theaters uh, shut down. Uh, These guys, uh, the Lord Strang's men, they mostly played at the Rose Theater in London. But because the theaters were shut down for the purpose of social distancing, I guess it's a a term they would not have used, but a term that we are all familiar with now. Uh, Many of these theater companies went on the road, including this one. And in fact, they they mostly stay on the road like this until pretty late in 1594. Uh, And I'll say that this date also works for the play, the play that we're going to get in a few pages, right? A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, I will not go into a whole thing about dating Shakespeare's plays, though I'm having to restrain myself as a historian (laughs) who loves dating issues about manuscripts. Uh, But I will say that there are about, uh, I guess guess about half of Shakespeare's plays that we know definitely when they were composed, uh, you know, when they were written down and when they were first staged. But for the other half of them were less certain and less certain to varying degrees. Uh, Dream is one where we are less certain. We know that it was being performed by 1596, but we don't know if the performance that we have records for that year was the first performance. And so scholars usually list the date of composition as 1595 or 1596, but there is absolutely no reason that it could not have been composed here in 1593, played on the road. Uh, you know, in this out, in outdoor settings, even at that, and then not performed again for a few years when they returned to to London. Uh, so there's a, a lot going on in the opening of this story, really even up to the title page. But I think let's get to the Sandman side of things in another minute or two, because there is so much detail packed into the Shakespeare side of this setup. Though I will say that it all flows so masterfully, like all the people that we're going to meet here. And Neil Gaiman really did do his homework here in terms of Lord Strang or Lord Strange's men um, and where they likely maybe would have been at the time not being in London, as you indicated. And with the exception of one of the actors who's referred to as Tommy in the comic, all of the other members of the troupe who are given names are people who were... Um, with the troop at various points and likely with the troop around this time. Um, so these are all our kind of famous members of Shakespeare's troop. I guess the advantage of being part of a troop with Will Shakespeare is that, uh, even if you've acted in, with him for a period of time, then uh, historians well know many things about you that they would not necessarily know about other actors who were part of other troops. I would like to note, and this is from the interview in the High Benders Sandman Companion, um, there was discussion about why the stage of Sussex Downs was chosen by Neil Gaiman. And he explains that he actually here, it's a nod to uh, Kipling. Kipling... Uh, had placed uh, fairies from his stories in a spot kind of near uh, Barwash, which was where he was um, at home later in his life. And so since that was about 20 miles south of where Neil Gaiman was living, he decided to look for a place that was closer to where he lived um, at the time, which is where he kind of ended up um, with the locale that we have. Oh, that's really fascinating. Yeah, let, let's 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 get into the Sandman side of things, right? We've done the Shakespeare side of the setup here. Let's get into the like the the mystical, the fantastical stuff that is going on here, because uh, the deal here is this. Because I'm I'm going to have more questions about choices Gaiman has made here, but the the deal 
with the Sandman part of it here is that Shakespeare has written A Midsummer Night's Dream because of a commission from Dream himself and has written it to Dream's specifications. And we've seen this happening. We saw this happening back in Men of Good Fortune when, you know, Shakespeare randomly just happened to be at the same pub as Hob Gadling on the, the day in 1589 that Dream was meeting him for a drink. And so now Shakespeare and, and Burbage and Kemp and company are going to perform the play for Dream outside here on the Sussex Downs. And the precise location is the village of Wilmington. And then even more specifically than that, it is the nearby hill that features this gigantic chalk carving, uh, gigantic chalk carving of a human, I should say, is known as the the long man of, of Wilmington. This uh, this person, this figure, is holding two staves, or at least that's how most people describe it. Uh, but Gaiman here imagines that these are the outlines of a door, and that that is a door to the realm of fairy. And the the long man is called Wendell. <laughs> Dream actually addresses him as as Wendell, uh, and this is Wendell's mound. And Dream instructs Wendell to open his door. He does. There's a blinding light, and then we get this host of fairies coming through the door. That is the the title page, which is a really awesome bit of art here. Uh, before we talk about the fairies, though, I I, I want to know more about the the long man, or we should we should talk more about the long man. I'm going to have a question here. I'm, I'm I'm really interested in what Klinger has to say about uh, the way that Gaiman is using the long man of Wilmington here, but I'm especially interested in this name Wendell's Mount because I think Gaiman just made this up, unless it's from Kipling, I guess. Actually, there are a number of scholars who have, based on what Klinger says in the Antan Sandman, as well as uh, the interview with Neil Gaiman in Highbender Sand and Companion, there's some discussion of this in which um, there's some indication that um, Wilmington may come from something around the lines of Wendell's Mound Town um, as kind of a derivation. Um, and further than Neil Gaiman discusses the fact that Wendell comes from the Old Norse Venda, which means to change course, to travel, to move forward. So then Neil made the decision of, well, Wendell or Venda is uh, some kind of a gatekeeper because it's or something to do with travel. And so that's where he came to the idea of like, well, let's make it a door. Well, that's very cool. I I didn't do any of that etymological work, which actually I'm surprised and disappointed in myself for not. That's generally <laughs> my jam. I mean, I've been addicted to Tolkien since uh, since as soon as I could read. But yeah, I, I had. But I really was puzzled by that. And so that's cool. That's uh, that's an excellent bit of using some some etymology, maybe even like not very good etymology to to build a fantasy world, which is you know Tolkien's thing and is definitely my jam as well. But the Long Man of Wilmington, I should say, is a real thing. By the way, um, it it was once thought to be prehistoric, like you know, Stonehenge, like from around the time of Stonehenge. That is obviously what Gaiman has in mind here. There's some text that s- supports that here in the in the story. But I should say that scholars in the last 20 years or so have shown that it's actually not that old. It's actually from the early modern period. It's most likely the 17th century, meaning that it actually is younger than Shakespeare and would not have been here in 1593. Uh, but you know, this is what scholars are doing. They're always ruining everyone's fun. And, uh, as the sources I have are, um, predating some of the more modern research, uh, there's not a particular discussion of that. So there was an assumption at the time, um, at least when Neil was interviewed, uh, that it was kind of older. Uh, also a lot of local scholars have pointed to the fact that, um, independent of whether, the long man was there or not, the kind of shape of the hillside does allow some natural acoustics, which kind of maybe would work for the sake of an amphitheater outside. 
which is what the purpose is that then Neil has here, both as a convenient place for setting a portal for Vendel to open, but also to also to double as a stage itself um, in the outside natural environment, which I think works very well for the idea of um, the troop being somewhat outside their natural environment in terms of production, but the fair folk visiting um, from fairyland being closer to their natural environment in some ways. One of the things that really did jump out to me here in in this beginning part of the story is the sort of guff that the acting company is giving to Shakespeare that they're going to have to perform outside. They all thought they were going to an inn and were going to perform, you know, in some kind of respectable setting, like a respectable troupe of actors should do. But this setting looks absolutely beautiful. I would rather see this play out here on Wendell's Mound near the Longman <laughs> of Wilmington than at an inn. I mean, if I have to see it at the inn, I'll see it at the inn. But this to me looks a lot more more fun and a lot like just a, a much better setting for the staging of this this play in particular than an end would be so uh, I, I hope they were convinced by the end yeah i mean they seem to enjoy the performance as we'll see as they go along um and, and giving <laughs> it um they start out a little terrified but uh as they go i think they're enjoying it and they have a very receptive audience eventually so they do and that's some of the best stuff i mean seeing the the reactions of the human actors to the fairy audience and then also the fairy audience to this play, which is a thing that they've, they don't really know quite what it is, which is, is great, but uh, uh, let's get a little bit ahead of ourselves here. So we've, we've had our teaser. Uh, we should now get into the story proper. That story is going to center around this performance, which is the first ever performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream. It is here. It is outside. It is in front of an audience of fairies, some of whom our characters in the play. So we are going to see a lot of Shakespeare's play. And and what Gaiman does here, right, is he, he shows us a lot of reaction shots from the fairies. Uh, he gives us a conversation between Dream and Titania while the play is going on. We're going to spend a bunch of time talking about that. And then also does some playing here on the idea of twinning and mistaken identities in Shakespearean comedies when the actual hobgoblin Robin Goodfellow plays himself on stage. The actual puck Robin Goodfellow plays himself on stage here. So it is a, a lot of back and forth. It's a lot of cut scenes. So I think what we're going to do here is talk about this issue more structurally than page by page or, or panel by panel than we normally do. But I think even before we get into any of that, we should probably offer a brief primer on the play itself, or at least part of it. The, the play is also right, the collision of the human and furry worlds, which is what Gaiman is showing us here in this sort of meta story. And uh, but we should we should have a little primer on that part of the play. So Brent is going to get us started with the fairy part of the plot of the play, even though those characters do not actually appear until Act Two. That's not the start of the play. Uh, and then we can talk about like what we see of Gaiman's fairies here. So in the woods, there's a band of fairies. There is Oberon, who is the fairy king, and Titania, the queen, um, and they have recently returned from India. And they are there for the marriage of Theseus uh, and Hippolyta. And they are kind of at odds with each other. And part of the thing that they are odds at each other about is a young Indian boy that Titania has. And the boy is so beautiful that Oberon actually wants to have the boy be a knight or a squire. And Titania doesn't want 
Oberon to have the boy. She wants to keep the boy herself. Meanwhile, then they bump into a group of Athenian tradesmen who are oftentimes referred to as the rude mechanicals, which is what um, I believe Puck refers to the, them as in the actual play. And they all have various professions, which all involve kind of repairing or mending things normally, but they're trying to be actors. So they're rehearsing a play in the woods with the hopes that they'll be able to perform this play um, for uh, the Athenian nobility. Um, the play is actually uh, Pyramus and Thisbe, which is, uh, Glenn, you are more familiar with than I am because uh, I have not read uh, as much of Ovid's Metamorphosis, but uh, the story is taken from there. I don't know if that particular story is as comical as the particular <laughs> play that the rude mechanicals end up kind of putting on. The, uh, the Athenian tradesmen are kind of a varying level of quality in acting, um, by which I mean uh, they're generally presented as not very great actors uh, or even just bad, um, but that they certainly have a lot of fun uh, doing it and they take various levels of seriousness in terms of uh, the role um, that they should have. But they bump into the fairies who are also then at play here. And so um, a lot of the humor that ends up coming about in the interaction of these two is that Oberon uh, manages to get Puck to cause um, put a, a love potion on Titania so that she falls in love with the first person she sees. And what she ends up seeing is one of the Athenians wearing the head of a donkey or jackass uh, bottom. Uh, so she then is in love with him. The idea being like, oh, well, then we'll make her feel so ashamed that she does this, that she will um, give up this boy that Oberon wants um, and wackiness ensues. Yeah, and wackiness ensues is the exact plot of half the Shakespeare canon. Reads every comedy is, and then wackiness ensues. And it, there is a lot of wackiness. I mean, all of this is a ton of fun. There's so much going on with the the fairy stuff, the way that Gaiman is weaving it in and out. And I, I think maybe we should maybe run through some of the characters here a little bit. So, you know, Oberon and Titania are the king and queen of fairy. They're going to be the most important of the characters for Gaiman here. And I don't know, maybe they're the most important characters in the Shakespeare play, though I think we all remember Robin Goodfellow, right? We all remember Puck. He gets the, the best lines and is the most fun to watch on on stage. And, and I think, um, in the, in the course of Sandman comics and kind of the larger milieu, the larger DC universe that we have playing out in some ways, other than Dream, um, and William Shakespeare, the important characters beyond this issue are also to keep in mind are kind of Oberon, Titania, and the Puck, uh, Robin Goodfellow. He kind of has, uh, recurring bits that, uh, we will see him again. And also, I kind of like the fact that the comic plays with the idea of the play showing kind of a comical adaptation of Oberon Titania to real Oberon Titania it kind of reminds me of the kind of play within a play uh, that, that Hamlet provides us. Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely the model that's going on here, that this play that's being staged has a play inside of it, but then we are watching a play inside a play inside a play. I mean, it's just plays all the way down, which might actually be the like thesis statement of this issue as well. We'll get to that. And Neil Gaiman kind of, when he thought about how he was structuring things throughout this, he thought of it as there are four different, basically, groups of people throughout. Um, and he kind of bounces back amongst them, um, in which, um, you've got what's going on on stage. 
You've got what's going on behind the stage with the actors, and you've got what is going on in the front row audience where uh, Dream and real Titania and real Oberon are sitting and and where, where Puck is for much but not all of the play. And then you've got the back row where you've got real fairies one of whom does share a name with one of the fairies that's in the play, but the others who do not appear to, who are in the back, who are kind of partially nicely serving as exposition um, of what is going on in the play, but also providing additional comic relief, which I think is great. And there's the fun framing device that is done with the art um, that Neil had worked out um, and that Charles Vest executed so nicely here, in which in most pages, the top and bottom rows of the panel are what is going on on stage. And the middle row of panels is something occurring in one or two of the other locations, either backstage or the front row or the back row. I mean, it's brilliant, absolutely masterful use of the comic medium to to tell the story that way. And of course, the breaking it down into four stories is also what Shakespeare is doing in this in this play. There are four groups of people going on. We've got the fairies, we've got the rude mechanicals, we've got the lovers who we haven't met yet, and we've got uh, Hippolyta and and Theseus. We've got the the, the duke and soon to be duchess of of Athens. That's really sort of the frame of the whole thing. We'll get to those elements of it later. Let's talk about some of these characters a little bit. Maybe let's actually start with Robin Goodfellow at, at, with, with Puck, because you've alluded to this already, Brett, which is that at the end of the story, the fairies leave our world to return to fairy. It's actually something that doesn't seem to really be up to them, which is interesting. Wendell opens the gate on his own, and this is kind of a signal that they have to go. But Robin Goodfellow decides to stay. And the last line of this story actually is, Robin Goodfellow's whereabouts remain unknown. And even if I didn't know we were going to see him again, right? I just absolutely love this. Right? I love the idea that he is still here with us making mischief in our world. It's awesome. Yeah. And I really enjoy how much delight both visually from Charles Vess's art, but also in the text that Neil Gaiman gives us of, of what he says that Robin Goodfellow takes in watching the play and in messing with the mortals. And I think that that nicely evokes what the character in the Shakespeare play of Puck kind of the joy he takes in being a mischief maker, particularly for mortals, but you know, he doesn't discriminate that much. Uh, but the decision to make him look kind of more like, kind of more of a monkey or something I thought was an interesting art decision. Um, he's kind of hairier and a little lankier. And he also very much is depicted as if he's kind of more of a pet of Oberon's in some of the art where uh, Oberon seems to be kind of stroking him at his leg at one point uh, when they're watching the play. And I think that was an interesting decision um, to kind of have him be kind of a mixture of a pet and kind of a mischievous child kind of yeah, one of the things that we should say about the fairies is that they do not all look the same. They are not all physiologically the same type of being. It probably is not going to be right at all to talk about like species and genus or something like that to like sort of throw like scientific uh, labels onto these uh, these fantastical creatures. But we have been using interchangeably Puck and Robin Goodfellow here, which is what everyone has been doing for literally centuries. Robin Goodfellow is the character's name. Puck is the thing that he is, is the type of creature that he is. But he is also called Hobgoblin in the play. So Puck and Hobgoblin seem to be termed for the same thing, or they might have different meanings, but in either case, Robin Goodfellow is is uh, is both of them. 
And I guess the idea here, I don't really know very much at all about fairy lore in the English tradition. I know about the literary tradition, like, you know, Spencer and medieval fairy stories, but I don't really know so much about the folklore, right? The sorts of tales that, uh, that, that, that just regular people tell each other when they're, you know, out uh, herding sheep or doing other kind of agricultural work or whatnot uh, about what types of fairy, different about what different types of fairies there are and what their special domains are. But it does seem that either Hobgoblin or Puck refers to a type of fairy who makes mischief in your home specifically. And Gaiman is doing a great job of showing Puck, showing Robin Goodfellow here, go into someone else's you know personal space essentially and make a ton of mischief that doesn't do any harm. That doesn't do any harm. And in fact, one of the lines in the play is that although he does make lots of mischief, it actually brings good luck to the people he pulls the mischief on, that he's a prankster who will ultimately bestow good luck on you. Yeah, and we'll have to see whether, you know, that remains true for um real puck um <laughs> going forward. But um and there there is a bit nice bit here, uh, switching over to Oberon, Leslie Klinger notes some of the perhaps origins of Oberon that uh Oberon is a variant of Oberon, um traditionally the king of fairy. The name probably derives from the German, and this is where I continue to mer- massacre every word I'm about to say. So um, apologies to everyone, and Glenn can correct me uh, as I go, or not. Um, but it probably comes from the German uh, Alberich or Elfreich, which is the Elf King. Um, in the legendary history of the Mor- Morvingian dynasty, he is identified as a magician, um, the brother of Merowich. Merovic, Merovic, Merovic. Um, yeah, those are the people my uh, my 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 uh, academic research is about. In uh, the, um, um, he's the guards the treasure of the Nibelungen, uh, but is overcome by Siegfried. Um, in German medieval poetry, he is named as Al- Alberich, um, the king of the dwarves, and Oberon first appears in literature in a French uh, Huon de Bordeaux. Uh, in the 12th century. And here Oberon is, Neil Gaiman's made him of Dom Daniel. Dom Daniel is described in E. Cobham Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, 1898, as, quote, the abode of evil spirits, gnomes, and enchanters somewhat under the roots of the ocean, but not far from Babylon. So, um, there's a lot mixed up there. And I think one of the things that works well about the fairy, as you said, uh, it's not that we were going to easily be able to identify what genus or species or the relationship here. And I think that, um, the art even does a good job where Titania and Oberon and, and Puck kind of have distinct forms and, and the, the ones we see in the back row do too, Scarrow and, um, uh, Peace Blossom and they, uh, nicely have, um, kind of defined forms, but otherwise, when we see kind of the mass of the field of fairy, they all are just kind of maybe even ever shifting themselves. But they, I think, come from the idea that this is you know something that you are only half remembering from like a dream where you don't quite remember what it looked like, and it also maybe makes sense that this thing looks like it's made of twigs, and that thing looks like it's you know traditional kind of sprite with wings, and that thing looks like it's a rat with horns kind of stuff, and it, it kind <laughs> of works in the logic of fairy tale 
and the logic of what you imagine fairy to be, where it's just like, no, they're not from this plane. So normal rules don't have to apply to them in terms of kind of the way the genetics would play out. And we should also note that although a whole lot of attention is not going to be drawn to it here, we are going to learn that these fairies, which is something I think just in our pop culture would take for granted, but doesn't have to be true in every speculative fiction world. But it is the case here that these people are at least extraordinarily long lived, if not immortal, that Oberon and Titania, all of these people have been around for a really, really long time. And there's doesn't need to be any sense in which they were ever born biologically rather than just were created in some through some other process that their whole genesis their whole origin is magical in and of itself which is why they don't have to appear to be physiologically even the same species the, the word that we would use to talk about a terrestrial creature right none of those rules have to apply at all to these fairies they are they are magic and in the setup of the kind of the cosmology of the DC meta universe, you know, that Sandman is part of and in some way is helping build here, the fairylands or fairy exists kind of separate and askance from our plane. And so there might be very different rules that are in play there. Um, there are different bits of ways that time flows and different laws that are in effect. And it's similar to the fact that the dreamlands is another kind of thing that is a different plane. And so in some ways we have here dream, which we have not seen him do since he maybe since he went to hell interacting with someone who is not a sibling, but is kind of of like kind of, you know, King plus slash queen of their domain um, visiting a different domain. Yes. And when we zoom in on the conversation between Dream and Titania and Oberon a little bit as well, I'm going to have some more questions about that, about what we can tease out. But then also, of course, we'll, we'll draw on some of your your knowledge of the uh, the DC Comics lore as well. I want to I want to say a few things about some of the information you had there about Oberon. The uh, the French courtly romance, Ouan of Bordeaux, is, is, is 13th century, not 12th century. Uh, that is, I would say, the origin of Oberon. Uh, scholars do like to point to Alberic from the Nibelunga lead. Uh, I think that's probably all nonsense. And I, I actually think that probably most scholars, most people doing either French or German or English medieval literature now would say that that's probably kind of some nonsense from 19th century scholars who desperately, desperately wanted to trace each and every medieval story to some kind of origin point in a Germanic folk tradition for uh, reasons of uh, you know pro-Germanism, pro reasons of, of German nationalism that we don't have to subscribe to anymore. And so I, it does seem likely that this is really a French tradition, the, the, the fairy story, the medieval fairy story genre that we as English speakers tend to think of as being an English language tradition, uh, especially like wrapped up in King Arthur and so on. Uh, also, we you know we get some in Chaucer, we get this play, we get also contemporary to this, uh, Edmund Spencer's uh, great poem, great unfinished poem, The Fairy Queen. But it is actually a French tradition in its origins. And it, it 
actually gets transplanted to to, to England as part of uh, the the Norman conquest and is really part of the Anglo-Norman tradition there. And so this seems to be the origin. Juan de, de Bordeaux seems to be the, the the earliest version that we have of this that's that's perfectly datable, that probably comes from some other sort of bardic, uh, that might not be the right word. In fact, I know it's not the right word, but let's say that sort of oral song-making uh, tradition of maybe the 11th, maybe the, the well, definitely the 12th, but maybe even the 11th century, but that is probably as far back as this really goes, uh, that someone in the 11th or 12th century invented this uh, largely whole cloth would be uh, would be my stance on that. And I, I just want to also say that, you know, I mean, one thing that should be clear, of course, certainly for a long time, I thought Shakespeare had invented all of these characters. Turns out Shakespeare actually invented zero characters ever in any plays, uh, <laughs> that he was always drawing on other sources. And in fact, even contemporary to him, uh, though perhaps actually later than the date that is on this, you know, fictional imagining of this, uh, of the origins here of the play. Uh, but in December of 1593, a theater company in London staged a version of that original 13th century romance, the script for which has now been lost. But we have some accounts of it, uh, and it's in the, the register of plays and so on. And so there was a lot of interest in fairies on stage at this time. Shakespeare wasn't the only person doing this and was definitely taking cues from other people who, had, who were doing similar things. I also want to talk about Dom Danielle. This is a, a, a modern invention. This is actually an invention of later than Shakespeare. It's an invention of Jacques Cazot, who's a French writer. Uh, he invented this in the 1780s in his continuation of A Thousand and One Nights, where he adds this like secret cave. But it's everywhere. It's been widely incorporated into other speculative fiction. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's used it. Lovecraft used it uh, in his short story, He, which is generally regarded as one of his five worst stories. But hey, it's got this in it. So <laughs> I will look forward to doing that someday on Elder Sign. Uh, and of course, probably the most important thing we should say is that Neil Gaiman uses it again in Marvel 1602, right? This other <laughs> fantasy world that he plays around with that's uh, only nine years later than this story. Uh, he uses it there in, uh, and I will say in a non-spoilery sense, a very interesting way. Um, but here, I think he must be using it either as a name for either all of fairy or maybe a specific place in fairy. Uh, that's, that's at least sort of my head canon of how he's using it. Yeah. The implication here is that Oberon and Titania are king and queen of all, all of fairy, just as Morpheus is the king Lord of all of the dreamland. And that, you know, for instance, when we saw his journey to meet with Lucifer, he was surprised to find out that hell had a triumvirate and did not have a sole monarch. So, you know, we've seen with dealing with members of his family, they are each kind of the personification, but also the kind of the masters of their individual realms for the realms we have seen. Um, or sometimes they're the sole inhabitants, I guess, in many regards. And there's some interesting power dynamics, um, which we can get into a little bit later regarding Titania and Oberon as to who may or may not be the person who is really in authority here. But yes, yes, because it does very much seem to be Titania, but we'll get to that when we get to the big conversation, which is really the centerpiece of the story that Gaiman is telling here, or at least the Sandman part of the story that Gaiman is telling. There's one more character I want to talk about, Brent, before we get to that stuff, though, which is the uh, really the character maybe from the play we should talk about is the the Indian boy, this, this page mm -hmm. that yes. O'Brien and Titania are fighting over. The it's not referred to as a changeling, but the idea of changeling is a big deal in our lore. This idea that fairies will take a human child and replace that human child with uh, either a fairy or just something that's a kind of 
facsimile of a of a human and is not fully a person. Uh, often in our urban fantasy language, that you know becomes something like missing a soul or something like that. It's a big part of our pop culture, and and it's a big part of the medieval uh, fairy story tradition as as well. Though in the play that isn't necessarily what's going on here. It's actually right that Titania is taking care of an orphan that she feels like she has a responsibility for because the mother of this of this boy was a friend of hers. But also uh, the, the term that's used in the play is votaress, which uh, a, a votive, a vow is a type of prayer. Titania, we should say, is a name that the is Greek. Uh, it is part of the ancient Greek mythology. Uh, it doesn't refer to a specific person. It's a title. It's just the feminine form of, of Titan. Uh, but it does imply that Titania is a, a goddess, that she has worshippers, the whole s- setup here. And so she's taking charge of this boy because her, her mother died giving birth to her. There doesn't necessarily seem to be any changeling aspect of it. But there is, I think, some changeling stuff going on in this story here. And that is that Titania is super interested in Hamnet, uh, Shakespeare's uh, son here, who's, uh, I guess he's about nine or, or eight here in the in this story. Hamnet famously dies in 1596. Uh, he's 11 at that point. And Gaiman ends the story here, in fact, by telling us uh, that. He gives us that information as if it is an epilogue to the main story. So I have always taken this to mean that Hamnet did not actually die in 1596, but was taken by Titania. Is, is that what you think we're, we're meant to infer? I think that is what we're meant to infer from this story, but in addition to that minor, minor, minor spoiler, I don't know if it's a spoiler because it's not a plot point, in the Books of Magic, at some point, because time is different in fairy than it is um, on Earth, from the uh, around 1990 or so, Timothy Hunter, when he visits the Fairylands and meets Titania himself, she has a young page with her whose name is Habnet. So the implication is that Hamnet has been residing with her for however much time has passed in the Fairylands and the lands of the Fair Folk since, you know, 1596 until, until the 1990s, an hour kind of chronological sense. Um, so that, that seems to be confirmation there. And it's just, it's not given much of a panel, but, uh, there's also a bit in that comic in which, um, the big lesson for him to learn is that she offers him something to eat and he has to be stopped from eating something. Because if you were to eat something that is given to you or take accept a gift from, uh, the fairy, then you would be imprisoned forever in that realm. And so in this comic, we do see Hamnet being given something to eat from her and also being promised all these wonders if only um, he would visit sometime. So the implication, I think, is that he he does visit her. Um, and I did want to talk very briefly about the the concept of changeling because it's um, it is something that comes up a lot in um, pop culture um, over the centuries. And there's a lot of kind of useful constructs of it. I do want to also acknowledge, though, that part of the idea of it is also kind of uh, – kind of a terrible inhumane way that sometimes we've regarded people who have disabilities over time in that we assume that the child who is not able to communicate or be in a quote-unquote normal way is somehow not even a really the child um, and not a human but rather a replacement it's kind of a, um, a sad kind of artifact in that way of humans not fully understanding and not able to sympathize um, with um, other humans who are different from themselves. 
So notwithstanding, I do enjoy the use of it um, in a fictional sense uh, for the idea of there actually being fairies that are replacing things. Um, and uh, recently in the new version of the Changeling role-playing game, there's actually a fun bit where you play yourself who was actually abducted as a child and you manage to come home only to find out you've been replaced by a better version of yourself and you can't convince anyone that you're not actually um, the poor through a mirror darkly version versus the um, kind of perfected person that's been living with them this whole time, living your life with your parents and your family. So. Well, that's kind of where we've gone with this in our pop culture. I mean, you're absolutely right to point that this is a way of dehumanizing uh, kids who are deemed to be wrong or flawed in some way. And and not, not just dehumanizing them in the way that we talk about doing that in our society, but dehumanizing them in this particularly medieval Christian way where you're saying, that's not a human being, that's not a person that was created by God. And if it wasn't created by God, then it's it's devilish, it's hellish, right? So it's, it's not mm-hmm. just going to like a neutral state, it's not saying that this is just an animal, which I think is usually what we mean when we're saying we're dehumanizing people, like when we're talking about dehumanizing people so we can enslave them, for example. I mean, this is actually regarding the, uh, this this child uh, in front of you as a, as demonic, and 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 yeah, it's it's just some gruesome yep. business there. I mean, it's really ugly. But we have flipped that around in our pop culture. <laughs> Most stories that are like this, uh, thinking of uh, well, lots of examples, but one that I'm thinking of that I did on Atos uh, recently is uh, the War of the Flowers by Ted Williams, where the idea is, and, and this is all over our urban fantasy literature, right? That the protagonist is actually a changeling and doesn't know it, but it explains why he or she is so beautiful, so awesome at everything, right? <laughs> that like that it's actually a way of saying why this person is so good at things and superior mm-hmm. to a human rather than inferior to a human, though that's the origin of the of the concept. We've really flipped it around. And I think who among us growing up in this pop culture environment as an adolescent hasn't fantasized about, hasn't yearned to discover that, in fact, these are not my real parents, these people I can't stand to live with, but uh, (laughs) because I am actually a fairy changeling and I'm going to be awesome and I'm going to get to go to the land of fairy and do awesome fairy stuff someday. Yes. And, you know, it's also, there's a lot of kind of cultural coding in there, depending on how you look at it in terms of like, you know, Someday I will be able to leave this place that is not amongst my people and I will be amongst my people. So there's a lot of um, useful um, fictional metaphors sometimes there for the LBGTQ community as well in terms of um, being able to find your community where you fit in as opposed to where you are, which is not kind of the place that is best for you, which is the kind of the, as you said, it's the flipped kind of happier version of that versus the version historically um, in which um, you consider the thing to be evil. And, you know, as you said, not just inhuman for the sake of not being able to, not having to treat it as a human, but even something to be regarded as something to be feared and or destroyed. um, And that being a good thing to do. So. Anyways, I've taken us far off track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I mean, that's the intersection between fairy stories and uh, the X-Men, I guess, which uh, yeah. I don't know. I would read that scholarly book or go, go to that talk at a con for sure anyway. So someone should someone should do that. But but yeah, we, we, we've, we've spent a lot of time here on the fairies. We should actually get into uh, at least a little bit about the human part of the plot of Wait, Shakespeare's are, play. Are there, are there humans in Shakespeare's <laughs> play? I thought it was just, I mean, there's the rude mechanicals. We talked about that. 
them. Are, are there others? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think not really the way most of us remember this, right? At least those of us who love fantasy and science fiction, those of us who love speculative fiction literature. But yeah, it's actually mostly it's mostly these other characters. <laughs> I mean, I guess there there is a bit in which you know uh, the real you know Peace Blossom and um, uh, Beavis the Giant and Scarrow <laughs> are talking about some other people, but I don't I didn't find the other people as interesting as just imagining how much fun it must be just to hang out with Beavis and have he, him shush people who are talking too much during a play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that stuff is just comedy gold there. It's like Mystery Science yes. uh, 1593, I guess, <laughs> I guess, right? Yeah, so so we... we and, and Gaiman doesn't really actually show us all that much of the human stuff that's going on inside Shakespeare's play, because that's not the element that you know he's glomming onto. It's not the element we're here for. But uh, but let's go through some of it anyway, and, and some of it's going to be important. Uh, as you said, Brent, the the setting of all of this is ancient Athens or ancient Athens, maybe not quite right. It's not really ancient Athens. It's like mythological Athens. Uh, Most of the drama though is concerned with four young people who are in a bizarre love quadrangle. That's going to have to get resolved. This love potion is going to help out. All of this stuff is pretty great. If you've got actors with a lot of energy and a lot of chemistry with each other, this can be really, really exciting to watch live. And it can be pretty fun though. On the flip side of that, if you are doing a kind of stodgy production of, you know, this is Shakespeare and it's great, isn't it? Uh, it is not going to work very well. And I have seen both versions of this. Uh, but one element of the story is that there's a, a woman who wants a man who doesn't want her, but wants the other woman who's in love with someone else. You know, it's just classic rom-com stuff, right? So you get the picture there. But uh, this dude, uh, this is Demetrius. He ends up being love potioned into loving the woman who wants him. And he remains the only character who who is still under the effects of the love potion at the end of the play. So the resolution is that Helena gets the man she's been pining over because of magic and everyone is okay with this. And I have always wanted to see a sequel uh, like set 20 years later when that potion finally wears off and he does not actually want this life that he's been magicked into having. I would love to see something like that. Someone surely has done something like that. I mean, I hope someone has, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's a little rapey, uh, which is downplayed a lot, of course, in the play, but, um, cause we're supposed to kind of go along with it, but it, uh, the, the magical thing that you drink to be tricked into being in love with someone who you're not actually in love with is, uh, a little icky and you kind of got to set that aside to enjoy the comedy a little bit. And it's more so that that's where things end. And so luckily you don't have as much time when just sitting with the play to, to think about that. But it reminds me a lot of, um, actually some recent things in, uh, the end of the first season of Star Trek Discovery. That, and I mean, this is a constant refrain, really, I think, in speculative fiction. There's, uh, I don't know, at least three episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, or three episodes in the Buffyverse anyway, maybe I'll put it that way, that deal with this kind of thing. And in fact, while I was revisiting the play this past month, I, I just kept hearing Giles, you know, giving lessons in my head, you know, about why you shouldn't <laughs> use love potions and why none of yeah. this is morally okay, <laughs> and so on. So uh, yeah, Shakespeare needed a Giles in his life, though, you we, know, we, still interesting. We all, we all need a Giles. That life. is to, uh, that is true. <laughs> to bring us coffee, if nothing else. Right. <laughs> yes, and just you know, gosh, yeah. If all our libraries were staffed by Giles, yeah, the coffee is a deep cut for those who remember commercials from the eighties. Uh, yeah, it's as the Nescafe commercials. I've 
I have watched them on repeat from time to time. You know, when I'm in a dark, sad place and need some need some optimism, need some hope in my life. Well, none of that actually really matters for our story. We should say, I mean, Nescafe might, but none of the other stuff about the human plot of the story really matters for this issue of Sandman. But the fourth subplot of the play does matter. And this is about the the Duke of mythological Athens and his fiance, as we've said already. These are Theseus and Hippolyta. Uh, these are fictional characters from ancient Greek literature or mythology, if you'd prefer to call it that. Theseus is most famous for killing the Minotaur in the, the labyrinth on Crete, but he's got this whole story cycle about various exploits. Um, I think, you know, we tend to think of Hercules as being that person, that Greek hero with all the exploits, or Jason from Jason and the Argonauts. But Theseus has just as many exploits as uh, as these other guys do. And Theseus is really the foundational mythological figure of Athens. And one of those various exploits that he, he goes on was a, a war between Athens and the Amazons, right? the, the women warriors who definitely exist in the DC universe, right? It's Wonder Woman, right? Maybe we'll talk about that later. But Hippolyta is the queen of the Amazons. She brokers a peace uh, with Theseus by agreeing to marry him. And we are on the eve of that wedding here in the play. But this version of the story, this this part of ancient literature, this idea of, of the, the, the wedding as the peace treaty and so on, this only appears in Plutarch's biographies, which is a very late work. It is centuries and centuries later than Homer, right? It's centuries and centuries later than the Odyssey and the Iliad. There's more years, there are more years, more centuries between Plutarch and Homer than there are between us and Shakespeare. So it only appears in this very late story, but this is a story, or really I should say this is a book, Plutarch's Biographies, that was available to Shakespeare in a very recent English translation. And it's this book that also supplied him with the material for Julius Caesar, which we've uh, talked about already here uh, on Hanging Out with the Dream King back in Preludes and Nocturnes, and also Antony and Cleopatra as well. And I just wanted to mention briefly, because you brought it up, Glenn, it's good to note that um, the Amazons actually do exist in this DC Universe. Um, Hippolyta is the queen of the Amazons. She is the mother for Diana, who is Wonder Woman. Also, Hippolyta, because of Golden Age math and other things, is the name of the uh, other kind of somewhat Amazon-related character, Fury, or Hippolyta, or Lita, as we have met her previously in the Sandman run. Uh, I don't think any of that is particularly relevant for this particular issue, but it does cause a bunch of interesting kind of overlapping when you think about mythologies, when you think about stories, which a lot of this comic is about, is the idea of also about kind of the recurrence of names as well as themes of characters. And so, you know, this is Sandman who has probably met real Hippolyta and also has um, recently interacted with another Hippolyta who, you know, may or may not be related to uh, uh, that Hippolyta, uh, Lita, who has a baby of perhaps some import. Um, and so, uh, that is another thing that's going on, uh, on the side in terms of the cosmology of DC kind of clashing with this particular Shakespeare play about kind of mythic characters from the age of Athens, we'll say. Well, we are going to get some information here, like some really interesting meta information here about the origin of the story the, that that Shakespeare is telling here in this play, and and really the, the, the you know the point, the thing that matters about bringing all of this background up is that this play 
is connected with ancient Greek mythology. We've we've seen that come alive in this volume of the Sandman already with Calliope. And and this I think is really where we can start and where we should start to look at the conversation between Dream and Titania that I think really is the the central thing that Gaiman is doing here in this issue. So early in this performance, I actually think they start having this conversation during Act 2, though that's apropos of nothing. It does not matter. But early in the performance, Titania indicates that she knows this story. It's not something that actually happened, she says, right? That, that Theseus and Hippolyta ever actually got married. But it is a story that she's heard before. And, and, and let's just quote her line here. So Titania says, it seems to me that I've heard this tale sung once in old Greece by a boy with a lyre. You are a deep one. I would I could fathom your motives. And Dream says that he will talk to her about that later, but then, of course, he doesn't, or at least not here in this issue. But the implication is that either this story or this boy with the lyre has some connection to Dream, and Titania is surprised that Dream is doing this, that Dream is wanting to revisit this story here. And then there is a line in the play itself that I think we also should pay attention to. And in fact, Gaiman uses it later in a very tricksy way. He places it somewhere else, nowhere near this conversation, so that we won't necessarily connect the two of them. Uh, and this comes from Act 5 of the play. It's when Theseus is reading a list of the entertainments that are scheduled for his wedding. And here's how he describes one of them. The riot of the tipsy bacchanals tearing the Thracian singer in their rage... That is an old device, and it was played when I from Thebes came last to conqueror. And that Thracian singer, that means Orpheus, who is most famous for going to the underworld to try to rescue his dead wife Eurydice, that is almost certainly who Titania is talking about as well. And and we're not going to spoil anything here for first-time readers, but this is all going to come back, but not for 30 issues, at least if I remember correctly. And I, I just have to marvel at the subtlety and also the patience of this. I mean, just you know, like a few months ago, in our Doll's House wrap-up, we were talking about how Gaiman was admittedly just writing issues and didn't really know where that story was going until he was halfway through it. But here, we see that he has figured out at least some of what his big story is going to be and is now setting that up. He's setting up plot points that are not going to appear for years and are going to end up being crucial to the arc of the whole thing. And it is really awesome to see that and what amounts to a throwaway line here. I mean, it is... It is brilliant storytelling, and it's so cool to see how much Gaiman has elevated his plotting and his world building from Doll's House, where he was doing a lot of scrambling. Yeah, it is really great to see him kind of set up a number of plot threads and characters, and also in a way that builds kind of lays tools out for himself to to grasp later, but also does wonderful world building by kind of kind of telegraphing what has happened in the past as well, both directly in terms of, you know, Titania having heard this tale before and so doing some world building there. But also there's some stuff going on below the panel. There, there, there's a point in which Dream in talking with Titania just kind of opens up to her about kind of his concerns about whether Shakespeare really understood what he was kind of entering in a bargain for and what he was actually giving up in exchange for this. And at this point, Titania is so obsessed with staring at Hamnet, she doesn't particularly listen to what Dream is saying. But there's kind of a closeness the two of them have, which seems to imply that they may be very, very good old friends or perhaps even lovers. And Leslie Klinger does note that the 
fact that Oberon is depicted here with ram's horns may be symbolic of the fact that ram's horns were sometimes used, particularly around this time, to denote that someone is a cuckold. So there is some kind of relationship building where Dream and Titania may have at some point been lovers, um, or in this way, maybe interacting more as lovers. And, and the closeness with which they regard each other and even sit near each other during the play itself, uh, as opposed to kind of the more formal seeming relationship that Oberon and Titania seem to have with each other is is notable, I think. Yeah, it is absolutely fair to say that Oberon and Titania have an open marriage. I don't think that's the term that would have, <laughs> it's certainly not the term that would have been used in 1593. I don't even think it's the term that we would have used in the early 90s, but that's clearly what is is going on here. And I mean, it's what's happening in the play as well. The The human characters are, are love quadrangle, our bizarre love quadrangle. There, there's no sex that happens there. So everything can get sewn up nicely, unless you're Demetrius, who's still under the love, power of the love potion. But but there's definite bestiality that happens, but it you know you can get away with that. You can put that on stage because the 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 human like character it's happening with the the not the donkey character is not actually a human but is a fairy. So you can get away with mm-hmm. that. But she definitely has sex with Bottom when he's half donkey in the play. But he is he is only half donkey and merely just from the neck up. So it's really like <laughs> you know a third or a quarter. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. There's certainly, I mean, I was gonna say there's certainly a lot to do with that. There is a lot that scholars have done with the bestiality element of this play. It is very interesting from that uh, that standpoint, but it is not important to this story. At least I don't think so. But this conversation, I mean, there's a lot to this conversation. And I should say that this conversation, right, it's peppered throughout the issue. We come into it, we leave it, we go back to it. But there's some really interesting world building in this conversation. And I do think we should talk first about this, this bit that you just brought up, Brent, which is Shakespeare's bargain with Dream, which we did see uh, the beginning of back in Men of Good Fortune. And here in this story, Dream tells us that he's made Shakespeare a great writer. He's made him, uh, this is this is quoting the text here, he says, he's, he's made him a vehicle for the great stories. Through him, they will live for an age of man, and his words will echo down through time. This is the second time that we've gotten this idea that stories exist independently of storytellers. And here I'm thinking back to the Little Red Riding Hood story that we got in Collectors. Yes. So we have this idea that the story is, is in fact, we even have the statements that a couple, told a different couple ways by Puck um, and also sit by dream about that things don't have to have factually even occurred to be true, particularly kind of as myths and stories make them so, which I think is kind of a wonderful freeing concept. And also given some of our contemporary um, societal <sighs> negative aspects, we will call, you know, uh, terrifying. Um <laughs> Uh, but the idea that there can be things that there's the remark about how the play isn't at all true that Titania and Oberon remark on, and yet it kind of captures the essence of truth. And this idea that stories can kind of capture the essence of things and that the story itself might long live on far further um, and, and kind of carry on uh, well beyond the life of the original author and also any memories of even what the original facts of the story were, which we saw a lot, as you said, Glenn, with the Red Riding Hood, in which the story has changed so much over the years. And, you know, we're luckily because of historical text, we're able to see even how that change has occurred. And part of what Dream is saying here is this is the use of of great stories, right? That they're 
is, and this is what we really had in Little Red Riding Hood, this idea that there are some important stories, great stories as like a proper noun, as a specific class of thing, like this sort of platonic ideal of story or something like that, or stories that have to be told and retold in order to continue to exist in the the world, in the, the cosmos in, in some way. And of course, we were talking in Collectors about the way in which those fall under dreams purview as storytelling falling under dreams purview, which we're definitely seeing expanded on here, built on here in this issue. And we'll get more of that in a a little bit. And I think it's interesting that dream then talks about why he had Shakespeare create this play um, and why then he is sharing it at this point with uh, Titania and Oberon and, 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 the other um, fair folk it's in, in thanks to them. It's that he wants, even though they will long be departed from our world and perhaps to, to never return um, except for Puck who stays behind that we living at the end of the 20th century, when we're first reading this, will know Titania and Oberon and we'll know about fairy and that they will, even though they've gotten been gone from centuries from our plane, we will nonetheless kind of endure their memory. And he does this kind of as thanks to the fair folk for what they provided while they were present in the world um, for him, which I think is uh, juxtaposes nicely actually with how we see dream interacting with the humans in this play. Cause he, he kind of, and Neil Gaiman discusses this um, with Highbender in the Salmon Companion. He doesn't really particularly think much of people at this point. We have not had the turn that occurs post-imprisonment in terms of his view of, of Hobgadling, um, where he could deign to actually acknowledge he is friends with a human. So Will Shakespeare is kind of just a somewhat of a tool that he is using. And it's not that he doesn't respect Shakespeare. It's that he doesn't necessarily care about him or how he reacts to things, which we get in the conversation he has about the fate of Kit Marlowe, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, he's really callous, really cold about that. And there is a lot of really interesting stuff going on here with the way that Dream treats the fairies versus the the humans. Also, I mean, just we should probably pause a little bit and just call attention to something that we've been taking for granted, which is, hey, fairies are a thing in this world, right? <laughs> this is a big deal in itself that we have sentient non-human people in this speculative world. Uh, I mean, I guess we did also have the Martian Manhunter, but this, this feels different than that. And we, we also get a cool note here in this story that the fairies were here before humans, or, or at least in England before humans. And yeah, now they're leaving Earth behind. They're returning to the world of fairy for good, which overlaps also with Men of Good Fortune. Last time we saw Shakespeare as well. It's on that first or second page, but uh, Death tells Dream to stop talking about work and enjoy their day out. So we never actually get any more of it. So I'm glad that that's a, a string that Gaiman decided to tug on here. But yeah, this this business with Dream's, at least one one of Dream's motivations of to be to to give the fairies a going away gift because he's enjoyed having them here. There are some interesting implications to that, but part of the gift is just this entertainment, of course, right? But the main purpose, I think, really is this uh, ensuring that we are going to remember them, even if only vaguely, and for a story that's not actually real, though true, but not real. But but the point of all of this, right, is that Dream is going to miss them, and it's it's subtle here, but I think the inference is that. Dream is really for this realm, our realm, which may mean only Earth, but may mean something else. But it does seem that 
fairies excluded from this, even though, right, we have seen that Dream has his own realm. He is also responsible for places out in the cosmos, including Mars. But it does feel like there is something different about the realm of fairy. At least it does to me. So I wonder if it does to you, Brent. And maybe the more specific question is, does Dream not have dominion or or influence in the realm of fairy? Like, do fairies not actually dream, maybe? Or is there something else going on with this? Or do have I just inferred it all wrong? Yeah, it's not really clear to me. And that, that's kind of where I landed as well, where I wasn't certain whether they dream. Because we don't have, going back to his trip to hell, you know, he makes his powerful exit by pointing out that it's dreaming in hell or the idea of a dream that, you know, allows kind of the, the torturing in some ways to kind of work there. Um, and therefore, perhaps he has power there. And we don't see them call him on the bluff. But, like, that is the bluff that he makes, is that dreams are important even there. Um, and so in that way, his domain kind of encounters there. While as here, there is not a comment about um, – in fact, there's discussion about – Titania says he can visit – Fairy. And so it's, it's kind of the weird way that the dreamland kind of interacts with these other places where the, the land of the fair folk seems to be a very distinct geographic, perhaps ever shifting geographic, but geographic locale separate from, you know, England, right? But is the dreaming something that kind of overlays and kind of drifts amongst all of it versus being a separate geographic location? We know that given his, when he escaped captivity, finally, um, that he had to work to physically return to dreaming. And when he turned up at the houses of mystery and secrets, he was exhausted from that journey as well as his years of imprisonment. So there seems to be some geography involved there, but it's really not entirely clear. And it's also not entirely clear then. Yeah. Do fairies dream? Do fairies even sleep is kind of, it's what (laughs) we're left with here. In fact, I believe when we when Timothy Hunter in the Books of Magic does visit Fairyland and meets Titania, it is perpetually in twilight. So it's as if the day doesn't actually end, which is maybe the reason why Hamnet um, can be there for 400 plus years and not look any older um, is because – the day just kind of basically continues. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about the question of whether or not they sleep. Certainly they do in the play, because there's there's the, the famous line from the play, there sleeps Titania, sometime of the night, lulled in these flowers with dances and delight. And in fact, the, you know, the falling asleep is a big part of how the, the, the love potion works, or at least how, how Puck is able to get it onto people. You have to put it on their eyes while they sleep. But I, I definitely think they don't dream. And I think that there's even more to it than that. And and so of course not dreaming means that dream himself has no authority over them that they are not part of his domain in any way. That seems that's that's got to be rare. It certainly seems like that's rare and it may even be unique. They might be the only creatures that he doesn't have any kind of dominion over and that might be part of why he likes them so much because they're the only people who you know other than his family who can really be equals or at least he can be on equal footing with right that he can feel like their friendship is really a friendship and and it because there is no verticality to their relationship at all but one of the reasons that i think that they don't dream in the text right one of the pieces of evidence i would point to 
is this business with Puck saying, this story's not real, but it's true, as if this is, one, the most amazing thing that's ever happened to him, but two, he's never thought about it before. And it's clear that other of the fairies don't know what plays are. Like, they don't actually even know maybe what stories are. Oberon and Titania seem to. But many of these other fairies don't seem to know what stories are. They don't know what plays are. And it's possible that they don't have that kind of imagination either. That's certainly the sense that that I get here. And of course, I think one of the big things that is going on in Sandman, we'll get to this point, you know, like more specifically in a, in a moment when this conversation continues, when the, 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 the dream Titania conversation continues. But like one of the big things is, hey, storytelling is something that's really important to who we are. And so if you want to have fantastical creatures who are different from us, take storytelling away from them. Seems to be, to me anyway, the move that Gaiman is making here. Yeah, well, and we see in when Dream confronted Desire in earlier issues, the whole discussion about like the relative power of mortals and human mortals to the endless and who really is in control there. And that there's something particularly special about um, human mortals in our kind of finite lifespans, but also our creativity and ability to dream and ability to desire and ability to, um, but yeah, compared to, we get a sense and it's not clearly stated, you know, what role Peas Blossom and Scarrow and Beavis and the other fairy folk have, but they feel more like they're performing kind of a functional role and that we're dealing with garden spirits or house spirits where you know, they exist, but they have a very kind of limited range of things they can do. You know, it's, it's you're not going to have someone who's like, you know, I decided that I'm going to start studying a little bit more about plumbing because I'm kind of <laughs> tired of just being like the electrical house spirit. I also want to get into like, you know, making rattling in the pipes occur <laughs> or not occur. Right. And so it's the idea that things are more performing specific functions. Um, but I think it's also accomplished a lot, even in the art. There is a bit in which Oberon is telling Dream, which Dream already knows, that that's going to be their last visit to the Earth. And Dream is in that panel kind of shrunk down. This is on panel 17, page 17. He's, he's shrunk down relative to Tanya and Oberon. They're all sitting very close to each other. It's during the play. So the idea is also that they're whispering and being less disruptive, which you're in the front row. You should be less disruptive. <laughs> You know, he, he's looking just kind of small and we're not used to dream looking small. We're all, we are usually looking him looking, you know, particularly more powerful. And in the next panel, he looks, you know, more on the similar height to Titania. But in this one panel, he's kind of drawn a little below. And I don't know if that's just because you wanted to get a little bit more of Titania's kind of, you know, crown tiara kind of peat bit in there or what, but it's, um, it also feels like he's just kind of sad and that he's losing these people. And in this way, I think that the, the fair folk, you know, they feel like perhaps they don't dream and they feel like they're maybe a little more functional, but they also remind me of kind of more kind of a Tolkien kind of elf kind of thing where it's like, they are from somewhere else. They have perhaps, you know, been forever and they perhaps never won't be. And, you know, then the idea that they are not, they're not like us. It's not like a variation the way that like the hobbits are kind of like humans, right? In which they still are getting food and it, the food is relatively normal. And 
Right, and even even the dwarves are are an aspect of humans, right? Yeah, but Tolkien's elves are not. They are something that's wholly different. And, and you know, drawing completely on the medieval fairy story tradition that is also, you know, being supplied here, right? And I will also acknowledge there's a fun little nod to some of this in some ways, if you really want to play with it, for those of you who are Dungeons Masters out there using fifth <laughs> edition. Elves don't sleep in fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Instead, they um, have a limited, instead of an eight hour long rest period, they have to, for four hours, enter a deep trance state, but they don't sleep. And so perhaps even playing with the idea that like elves also don't dream. Um, and so anytime you have any fun mechanics where you're trying to use dreams to deliver plot points to your PCs, uh, never give it to the elf. Just <laughs> never give it to them. Only give you, know, they can have wonderful knowledge they have because they maybe are centuries older than every other character, but make the human characters or others that are more like that be the ones who kind of receive these fun plot points because of the otherworldliness of what an elf is relative to what a human is and or hear what, a, you know, the, the fairy are versus what the humans are. Oh, that's great. I, I don't know fifth edition very well, but of course you and I grew up playing second edition together. And there was something, I don't think either of us ever played elves. That was not really our deal. But second edition had something like that too. It wasn't quite that, but it was elves being more alert while they're asleep because they go into something called a reverie or something something like that, if I recall correctly. So there's certainly a long tradition in, in D&D of that. I don't actually know where that comes from. It might come from, from this. Actually, yeah, the question of do elves, do fairies in the medieval tradition of this, do they sleep is a question I've never asked before. And do not know the answer to, uh, but now wish that I did. And so I will next time we record, or at least when we do the wrap-up episode. Uh, before we get to the really meat, the really heart of their conversation, like the really big cosmological stuff, I, I want to go back to something we we mentioned already, which is that, that Dream tells Titania that Shakespeare is going to pay a price for what Dream has given him for being given this gift of being the conduit for these great stories. And we we learned earlier when Dream and Shakespeare talk that part of the bargain is that Shakespeare writes this play for him, a play that we now understand has some deep personal meaning for Dream, even if we don't know what that is yet. Uh, and then he's going to have to write another one near the end of his career, which uh, I won't spoil which one that is, but we will see that at the end of the Sandman saga. Uh, but it is clear that, at least, I don't know, maybe it's not clear, but it seems to me that Dream is talking about an additional price here. And I'm curious, Brent, if you have any thoughts about what that is. I think what that is, is given to us around page 13. And it's, it's an interesting six panels because it's Hamnet behind the stage interacting with another young member of the theater troupe who's talking about how proud Hamnet must be of his father. And Hamnet then kind of tells a sad story about, you know, having a, not a deadbeat dad, but an absentee father for most of his life. And I, I will note that Neil Gaiman, um, in his research, and I have not done additional research on this, but based on research he did, there was not evidence that Hamnet ever did particularly travel with the theater troupe with Shakespeare. He logically may have, but there's no evidence either way. So it may be that this actually is the truth, where Hamnet was most of the time, and probably for a good deal of his childhood, since he did pass away so young, he probably didn't have much relationship with his father, particularly when he was traveling on the road. 
And so there's this disconnect here where Shakespeare is so obsessed with, as Hamnet says, kind of taking everything he can and just he, he turns it into his stories. Um, and Neil talks about this a lot when he talks about writing and he, he brings it up in the High Bender interview regarding this story specifically, but I've heard him reference it other places too, where it's something that's a way that a writer approaches things. And for all of us who like to think we're writers, we all kind of like look at this and be like, yes, we are that way, which is maybe the way everyone looks at it. But it's as you experience things in life and even like particularly things that are starkly terrible, just a tiny part of you is not really experiencing it, but it's thinking about how you're experiencing it to then be able to maybe use or steal those bits for something you maybe would write later or for your understanding of these things. And so it's kind of this extra disconnect. And I think we can talk about more how that may relate to what happens to characters in Calliope when we do the wrap up. But here we have someone who's just so fixated on the art. So it could be that my interpretation is that Shakespeare um, is so taken with the idea of being a great playwright and so focused on these great works that he's creating. He is kind of giving up his connection to the world around him himself. In some ways he has already exited in the way that the fairy are exiting Gaia and are not really interacting with it. He is not interacting with his immediate family and friends the way that a normal person maybe would be as well. Yeah, I think that's great. This idea that even, I mean, this is freaking Shakespeare, right? This is this guy who's crafting these, these stories, crafting these, these characters who have so much rich emotion, rich inner lives and uh, complex motivations and wants and, and desires. And he, he puts them in a, you know, a, a, a bowl and kind of shakes them up and gets these stories out of, out of doing that with these, just these characters that are larger than life that are so real. And that's one of the things that has made these stories, made these plays un- endure for us for centuries. But the idea that Shakespeare is doing that while at the same time, not feeling any of that himself, or at least not feeling any of that sort of pathos, this this passion for the real people in his real life. That is a price. And I, I think especially when we think about Shakespeare's life, Shakespeare, he, he, he definitely was not a dead deadbeat. He was, uh, he got incredibly wealthy uh, writing plays. I mean, entertainment was a big business in uh, London at this time. He became incredibly wealthy. And he spends the last 10 years of his life back home in Stratford-upon-Avon with his wife, uh, with his adult daughter, Judith Hamnett's twin, and and uh, her, I think she had she had several kids, I, I think, so being a grandfather. And one of the questions I think that, that we all have, or like anyway, Shakespeare scholars have, or even just Shakespeare fans have, is why wasn't he writing plays up until the day he died? Why did he retire? Why did he go back home? How do you leave the life of the theater to go to the you know, the countryside and just have nothing exciting to do, right? But this is why. He he fulfilled his end of the bargain with Dream and wanted to actually have his life back, the life that he put on hold in 1589. He wants to get back in 1608, 1610, or around around the time that he retired. That's a really great way to sort of solve that that uh, that mystery that uh, that we have about why Shakespeare left the theater. As I said, I really love these six panels and they kind of, they make the story. I think you're right that a lot of the story is about 
dream and Titania talking. I also think that the stories about the relationship between Hamnet and Shakespeare, I don't know that it works without these six panels um, for at least that portion. And I think it's important here to point out that we maybe would have gotten a copy of this comic without these six panels, but for Karen Berger being a great editor. So we talk all the time in comics about the fact that you know, this we're doing a Neil Gaiman podcast, right? So we're talking about the works of Neil Gaiman, but creating an individual comic really involves so many people, both the ones named on the title page and, and also number of supporting people who won't ever get their name on a title page. And, you know, the World Fantasy Award here went to Neil Gaiman and Charles Vess, but Karen Berger does a really good job um, as an editor and, you know, Neil Gaiman remarked regarding this comic um, in this is in the interview in the Sandman Companion by High Bender, um, in which she talks about how she almost never edits his drafts. But when he put in the first draft for this comic, he didn't have these six panels. He had some other kind of onstage humorous antics. And she read it and she said, what you've written lacks a human center of any kind. It's of interest only to Shakespeare scholars. And so to fix that, he wrote these six panels and had them replace it. So if it weren't for Karen Burr doing the great job that she did as an editor of identifying that you need to have a heart in here, otherwise it's just – it's going to come across cold, you wouldn't have this. And I think it, it really kind of brings it all together, but also nicely illustrates how a good editor can help elevate a text to make it great. Oh, that's awesome. That's so interesting because thinking about the emotional core of the human part of this story, being this kid lamenting the fact that his dad doesn't really seem to love him, right? I mean, he doesn't say it that way, but that's what is happening here. A distant, not just an absentee, but an emotionally distant father. We're getting that complaint from uh, from a kid who's you know airing this to someone, to, to a peer, someone else's own age. Because that is going to line up with some of the the world building things that are being hinted at here, and the illusions uh, and and hints that Gaiman is peppering here. And so it would have seemed to me immediately that that was intentional. That Gaiman was highlighting all of that. That he had that in mind. It's cool to see that he didn't. And so when we get thirty issues from now and can talk more openly about this, I think it will be fun to revisit the genesis of that idea and also see if you know Klinger and, and Bender have things to say about it. And I think it makes it that much more true. Sure. Let's go with true because yeah. we're talking about <laughs> truth and stories. It, it makes it that much more true within this issue. All of the bits that we later see where Will Shakespeare is in the position to notice the attention that Queen Titania is paying in his child and he fails to notice it when it's going on right next to him, when his son says something to him about the, the, the places the lady says she will take him, um, about him accepting fruit. Like it, he, there are plenty of opportunities where Will Shakespeare should notice there's a stranger who has a van with the door open and is <laughs> offering candy to my child, and he just doesn't notice at all. And it makes it that much more kind of heart-wrenching for Hamnet particularly, but even for Shakespeare. And it, I think, then makes it work better if you envision that this is the price that Shakespeare is paying, is that not directly he is specifically losing his son, but that he is kind of losing part of his um, disconnect from living life and being kind of in the moment, if you will. 
because he's thrown himself into a purely work. His work-life balance in a modern parlance is completely off, right? <laughs> so there is still this really big thing that we've been dancing around that we need to get to, right? This big thing that Gaiman puts into this conversation between Dream and Titania. There are three rings in the circus, and we keep dancing around all of the rings. <laughs> that is correct. So so Oberon thanks Dream for putting on this play, but he says that even though it's amusing enough, it isn't true. And of course, we've talked already about other characters saying the same thing, right? Robin Goodfellow saying this didn't happen, but it's true. But but in this moment, in this part of the conversation, Dream disagrees, and he, he gives a bit of a speech about this. Here's what he says. Oh, but it is true. Things need not have happened to be true. Tales and dreams are the shadow truths that will endure when mere facts are dust and ashes and forgot. And this is something of a theme that we've been seeing, right? This question of what stories are, what they are for, what they do for us. And of course, the idea is that they have a tangible existence in the world, a tangible, exi- a tangible existence that is uh, independent of their creators. And, and Shakespeare, you know, it's not just gaming, but Shakespeare also is interested in stories. He's interested in the craft that is his profession. And we get a lot of that in his plays. But this play and The the Tempest are the places where he is the, the most explicit about this. And so here we are in this play. And, and, and gaming even puts some of the text about this, some of the Shakespeare text about this into this story and what is a really great sequence of panels. But uh, here, Brent, this is where I thought that we should just do this bit of the play together. We should put on a little performance here because you and I are actually the only Clay Temple team that has not done at least part of a Shakespeare scene together on mic so far. Uh, this is Act 5, Scene 1. It's the, the first 26 lines. It's a, a conversation between Theseus and Hippolyta. Uh, it's a pretty famous bit of text. Uh, and we're, we're, we're not going to do it justice. <laughs> you know, you and I have no acting, uh, certainly no acting education. And I will say I have no acting skill or, or talent. I won't speak for you, Brent, but, uh, uh, but we'll try. Uh, Brent, we didn't work this out beforehand, so I'll just leave it up to you. Do you want to be Hippolyta or do you want to be Theseus? Well, because this is a podcast and it's audio only, um, apologies, the listeners won't be able to enjoy this. I am actually dressed as Robin Wright from the Wonder Woman movies, <laughs> um, so I am already in gear to be Hippolyta. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, my vocal quality will not sound like her, but uh, uh, you'll have to just imagine, though, that I am in full Amazon gear because the costuming on that movie is fantastic. Tis strange, my Theseus, that these lovers speak of. More strange than true. I never may believe these antique fables, nor these fairy toys. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies, that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination, all compact. One sees more devils than vast hell can hold. That is the madman. The lover, all as frantic, sees Helen's beauty in a brow of Egypt. The poet's eye, in a fine frenzy rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Such tricks hath strong imagination, that if it would but apprehend some joy, it comprehends some bringer of that joy. Or in the night, imagining some fear, how easy is a bush supposed a bear? But all the story of the night told over... And all their minds transfigured so together, more witnesseth than fancies images and grows to something of great constancy, but howsoever strange and admirable. 
and scene. So I, I hope we've done some justice to that. But uh, uh, there's a reason we're just uh, we're just talking about stories on the microphone and not on the stage. But the uh, the idea here is that by telling stories, right, we shape reality, that it's not just what happened. It's how we organize, how we arrange, how we understand that stuff that matters, even if that stuff didn't actually happen. And these stories then exist as their own real thing in the world that changes and shapes other people. And and this is what the dreaming is all about, right? And Titania, throughout this story, in several places anyway, even calls Dream Lord Shaper here in this story as he's someone who is giving form and perhaps names as well to things, but at least form, right? He's the Lord Shaper here in this story. So this is where I say that this is the central idea for this issue. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think it's just wonderful that there's bits that also nicely feed into even visually what we're seeing. Like, you know, the phrase, as you were reading it, imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown. That nicely encapsulates kind of how kind of the fairy folk that are not given, you know, specific lines are coming across in the panels to me where it's just like, I've seen the art and yet I don't know how best to describe what those forms look like. Um, but also the way that I conceive of what, you know, when you think about things that must exist in Sandman's in the, in the dreamlands in which like, you know, just there's, there's forms unknown and, and not being able to fully kind of, grasp your arms around all of these things. Um, and you're not going to be able to apply kind of a factual itemization, as we said, that the genus and species in a catalog of all that you see. One of the things that I love so much about Sandman, and, and you know, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but we are going to get to these parts of the the saga where we see the the dreaming, we're going to see the relationship between dream, between the dreaming and the stories of both our imaginations and our dreams. But, uh, and I love all of that stuff just from a sort of fantasy world building standpoint, the, the, the way that Gaiman envisions what this, the, these ideas that he's thinking of here would actually be like. What does it mean for stories to exist independently of, of storytellers or to exist independently of, uh, of people in, in some way? Or, or what does it even mean that, that stories can be true even if they never happened? Which I think for those of us, you know, I, I think this, you know, everyone involved in this podcast, you and, and, and me, Brent, who are making the podcast, but then anyone who's listening to this have certainly one thing in common, which is that stories really matter matter to us. And this story, many stories, The Lord of the Rings, Star Trek, right? These are stories that are real to me, even though they're not real. They didn't happen, but yet they are true. They are true to me. They are truer to me than the experiences of other actual real human beings on this planet who I I don't know. And it's and and Gaiman is doing such a wonderful job here of of highlighting that, of emphasizing the power that stories have for us. And he's only going to get better at at doing this. And, you know, I keep saying that this is the sort of central idea, the central theme of this issue. Uh, I may feel differently when we get to the end, but right now I would say, I feel like this might be the central theme of the entire saga. Yeah. I think a lot of it is, is that stories matter. Um, and that, I mean, in some way also then, you know, the, the meta commentary here also is that this, this comic matters. But yeah, but it's also just that, that there's a nebulous framework of what are the true kind of beats of a story. And even if the facts are slightly changed or different or told a slightly different way because of a different production of a given play, say, it 
it, it still doesn't mean that it isn't true to kind of the larger story. And then the idea always of Sandman in part is that there's someone who has a realm in which the platonic ideal of these given stories exist, or maybe the platonic platonic ideal doesn't exist anywhere and it's just various flickerings on the cave of how all the different ways it might be lit might kind of all exist simultaneously in that realm well we we've still got a little bit more story to talk about then we need to go through you know the cover art and the title and our favorite panels but uh i have been reminded that there's one more thing i want to say uh which is that there is another shakespeare podcast that i really love it's called the lunatic the lover and the poet which comes from this uh uh, comes from this speech here i didn't mention that at the top of the show because that's a podcast that is looking specifically at least right now at Shakespeare's poetry and so has not done something with mm. A Midsummer Night's Dream. So it was not part of my process for prepping for this episode. But I do want to say that's a great show. People should check that podcast out as well. But let's uh, let's let's uh, move on now. We've got uh, the, 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 the play ends. Uh, we get a great scene with the actual Robin Goodfellow delivering the very famous ending of the play. And then the next morning, the troupe wakes up on the hillside and Shakespeare asks if it was all a dream. But Burbage has the pouch of, of money that they were uh, given when they when they asked Oberon at the intermission for uh, for some kind of payment. He gave them a, a, a pouch of, of gold, except that it turns out not to be gold. It is just yellow flower petals. And he feels cheated. But Shakespeare says that they were paid full well because who else can say that they played to such an audience? Uh, but then Hamnet runs up here and he's talking about how Titania told him that she wants to take him to ferry. And uh, this is maybe some of this bad parenting here that you were talking about, Brent, because Shakespeare dismisses this as foolishness and tells him that he has to go practice his handwriting today. And that's it. That that brings the story to a close. But I, I'm really interested in this reaction to, to Hamnet here. I mean, I get why Shakespeare was distracted during the actual production, the actual staging of the play, to not notice that uh, Titania was laying the groundwork to abduct his son. But here in this moment, it's just a conversation between William Shakespeare and Hamnet Shakespeare. So why does why does Shakespeare want Hamnet to think that it was all just a dream when he knows that it wasn't? And I, and I guess this jumped out to me because, as we've said a couple of times on this podcast, I'm a new parent. And, uh, you know, I want to know how to handle this situation when it inevitably comes up in my life, right? What am I supposed to say to my son when he wants to know if this was all just a dream, right? But why, why, does, why does Shakespeare not tell, explain to him? Why does he just tell him to go do something else? Go do your homework. Well, and I think it's just that's part of, you know, again, if this is the price he's given is the disconnect and he's not seeing he has a blind spot for even his own words, because even in the suggestion of the tales that he's telling and that they have some import, even if they are not necessarily factually accurate, right? Um, the importance of the play itself to, to dismiss his son saying things as like, oh, those are mere fancies. It's just like you shouldn't after doing writing Midsummer Night's Dream, think of things as merely fancies um, that you just ignore. It's just, it's a weird. Right. I mean, he literally just told us, the audience, that yeah. stories really freaking matter. He's got this great monologue about it. Yep. And then, but and also in on this same page, he's just told his best friend, Richard Burbage, 
that it's super awesome. They don't need money for this performance because it's super awesome that they got to put on this play in front of fairies. Then his kid runs up and says, holy crap, dad, there were fairies. And he says, nah, there weren't. Go do your homework. Right. He has a totally different relationship with his comrade in the theater than he can with his own son. And it, boy, it is, it is heartbreaking. You know, of course, having read this for the first time as a teenager, didn't have a kid yet, but boy, this really hit me this time. Uh, to see that he's missing this this thing that's that 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 only eight months in already means so much to me. And as I'm looking at this page a lot more, I, I will say, and again, I, I'm a huge fan of all of this art, and I don't know whether this was a Charles Vest decision or Neil Gaiman decision, but in the final pan, second to final panel, so the final panel where we see our characters, um, I don't know that I would have so clearly shown Shakespeare with his arm around his son. Um, I think I probably would have them standing near each other, but not quite in the same uh, positioning. But, but yeah, I think I think it's too bad. And I have been thinking, though, in terms of not only did Will Shakespeare say, well, we were paid because we were able to perform this wonderfully. I did think, well, the theater troupe on the road, really what they need the money for is to um, feed themselves and give themselves shelter. And the fact that they don't seem to be complaining about being hungry, um, and all seem to have gotten a good sleep in the middle of this field <laughs> means that perhaps they were paid in other ways, maybe not for gold to send back home to their, uh, poor wives who are dealing with their children and, um, having to be single parents. But yeah, it's, it, it is kind of a heartbreaking, um, uh, kind of end to the tale. And it makes William Shakespeare, the person seem kind of, uh, uh, not great, even if William Shakespeare, the artist is, which there are better stories in this one for us to have a discussion about separating the author from, um, the work of, uh, art itself and whether how you can appreciate the works of someone, but still find them to be, uh, terrible. Well, should we get into our, uh, our end of episode conversations here about the cover, the title and the favorite panel? Yeah. Yeah. Ready to, to? Are you ready to tell us what you think about the Dave McKean cover here? I mean, the cover, given some of the other covers we've seen, I, I think is kind of uh, plain spoken. Uh, but we do seem to have some fairies kind of dancing about on it. Um, and we have kind of uh, almost a sorrowful face. And I don't know if that face is supposed to be kind of a blank stare of an actor who's a canvas waiting to, to deliver something, or if that's uh, Oberon, you know, in his last visit to this, to this place, you know, kind of remembering, but also ready to go. Or if it's dream thinking about where he is and the, his attempts to confide into Tanya, who seems to be minus the Hob Gablin, Gadling, who doesn't acknowledge as a friend at this point, perhaps his only friendship he seems to have, seems to be with his sister death and with Titania. And and yet there's not a response there, but what were your thoughts on the cover? My thought was that this is dream for sure. Uh, though, you know, it, it, it could be anybody. It doesn't look like any actual character that we get in the issue, but my sense was that this is about dreams, sadness here, though that really is just something I'm bringing to the image, right? My reading of the story is informing my reading of the, the cover image and not the other way around. So I think you present some pretty good alternatives as well. Also, I think you're right to point out it's maybe not as exciting as many of the other Dave McKean covers. It seems actually kind of lackluster to me, but but yet the the fairy drawings are they're quite they're quite beautiful just seems very different and is maybe not the the Dave McKean style that I prefer but on the other hand I think that kind of um I don't want to sound like I'm putting down Dave McKean here cuz 
such a big fan of his work, but um, the kind of underwhelming in a way, understated, we'll say, cover, I think plays well for then the bright pop you get on the first page once you enter, have the comic come. And so it works to have it be a little bit more sedate. Uh, it also works to have the fairy bodies are very... You can very much kind of pick out where they are, but they have a kind of intangibility where it's not clear, like, what is wings versus what is kind of just air around the wings versus something else um, that is going on. And some of the fairies look like they're wearing masks. They actually kind of look like superheroes, like caped superheroes, which I think is uh, is pretty cool. Let's uh, let's talk about the title then. I mean, the title is pretty straightforward in the sense that it is the title of Shakespeare's play, but maybe we should talk about why Shakespeare gave it this title, and, and maybe in particular, why Midsummer. And you might know better than I do on this one, Glenn. I can't remember if there was anything I was uh, taught the number of times that um, uh, someone tried to teach me something about this play. Um, <laughs> I, of course, always think about Midsummer Night as being the longest day of the year and therefore the shortest night. I think then also, as we talked about the idea of the fairylands being forever in twilight and that perhaps the day does not end, that similarly, it, it's the night will last a while, which we have reference to in the comic, too, in which um, it is the Midsummer Night. And so he knows the light will hold longer to be able to do the production out in the open air and not worry about the fact that it will go dark before they end. But uh, what are your thoughts on the title of the play, or or what am I forgetting that I um, am going to get scolded on by English uh, teachers and professors all <laughs> over the world? Well, I will say that you know I say why did Shakespeare give it this title? We don't even know that Shakespeare gave it this uh, this title uh, just because of the the nature of our evidence about uh, uh, the just because of even the, the nature of the publication history. Uh, you know, many of the plays we know whether or not the title we use for them is the title that Shakespeare used, but many of the plays we have alternative titles, or at least we know that they had a, a different title originally than they had in later performances, uh, especially with some of the history plays that can be quite long. So I'll just, I'll just give that caveat there. But, but you know, Midsummer, I think, I think you've hit the thing that probably really matters for us thinking about this is a Sandman comic, which is about nighttime. And, and I think you do a great job of tying that in with this, this sense of, of twilight uh, that Titania emphasizes as being part of the nature of her realm. And that the thing that makes Midsummer Night Midsummer Night is that it is the shortest night of the year. But there is, of course, also just a sense of festivity, a sense of festival around the play, uh, uh, around the, the action in the play. I mean, it is, you know, a, a wedding. So there is a, a festivity, there is festival, there is celebration in the play. And Midsummer is a point, I think, just about every culture, uh, you know, any any society that's really tied to agriculture, which is every society uh, more than 150 years ago, is going to notice that uh, Midsummer and Midwinter, right, these, these sort of astronomical, uh, astronomically important markers for the seasons are a pretty good time to have a party for your community. And and that seems to me to be a big part of why it's in the title of the play, uh, you know, pointing to uh, the types of festivities, types of celebrations that, you know, the audience would be familiar with carrying on at Midsummer, uh, but also just the idea that Midsummer is a holiday, the idea that is a day when you take some time away from your labors and your usual life and have a party with your community. Because the story that we're seeing here, right, is a pretty unusual day for everyone involved. It's a, it's a day when you step aside from your normal routine and do something different, whether that is watch some humans perform a story that's kind of about you 
or whether it's uh, perform a play to an audience of elves and fairies rather than an audience of of humans right there's a it's a it's a day that can have strangeness to it it's a day that is on the calendar set aside for a bit of strangeness and that's what we get in the story so what was your favorite panel glenn Bef- uh, before you actually get into your favorite panel because you did mention i mean the, yes the art is amazing and i think a lot of the credit here goes to um and it was recognized for them to the colorist the ability that was taken by, um, and the credited colorist on this one is, uh, colored by Steve Olaf. And Steve had a team of people working with him, um, at the time. And I think he still, um, is active at this time. Um, but they intentionally started with kind of bright colors to be the beginning of the day and then progressively, um, made the colors darker and darker and darker and went for colder tones as it went before finally going to the all black at the end. And then there's that pop of color for that one last page when it's the next morning. So there's just a lot of great stuff that I think Charles Vest is doing in terms of the art. Obviously, we've talked about the great writing that Neil Gaiman did, but also just lots of, um, Kudos here for Steve Olaf. I also will note, you know, we've been operating from um, kind of a mixture of some of the recolorized stuff as well as kind of our original printed versions. Um, and in this instance, we've gotten to an issue that has not been recolorized. Um, the color has been changed slightly, I think. Um, I'm detecting it, but I think it's more just kind of like this, the, the, quality of the print versus something else. But um, we don't have major changes in like colors being completely different as we have in prior issues where Robbie Bush's coloring was limited by what technology allowed at the time for being able to do the print runs. And now finally we've reached a point in te- comics technology, I think where um, the coloring has caught up. So no matter which version you're looking at, you should probably be seeing all the same colors represented in each panel. So Anyways, sorry to set all that up. <laughs> well, that's really awesome because I, I didn't, I did not notice the the change over time. That sort of getting the darker hues, the going from bright to dark to black, and then resetting to bright the next morning. I did not notice that. That is awesome to to know. I mean, it turns out that I have picked uh, one of the two bright panels. Then uh, I have spent a lot of time hiking the English countryside. Mostly, that's been in in Yorkshire and uh, and the Lake District, Cumbria, uh, and I really, really, really miss it. So I loved the very first panel, right? This establishing shot that uh, lets us know that we're in the South Downs and that we're right next to the Longman of Wilmington. This looks to be a cracking day as well. I mean, there's very few cumulus clouds, but mostly it is sunny. But then in particular, there are at least five different shades of green, which definitely appeals to me here in the the image. Uh, And there's a good hill to climb. But there is one detail in particular that I really love, uh, and that is the dry stone wall running next to the road to enclose Mm. the adjacent Mm -hmm. fields. There are tens of thousands of miles of these walls in the English countryside, and I just love them. But I will say that, strangely, there are no sheep in this panel, or any of the panels, which, uh, that's unusual. There should have been a lot of sheep around. Maybe they sensed the fairies were coming, so they went somewhere else in their pasture. But uh, uh, at any rate, this panel, and really the whole issue, it makes me regret not ever hiking in this area when I lived in England. And In fact, I only ever did one expedition in the South. That was to Dartmoor. I do highly recommend that. But uh, I, I wish that I'd gone here and checked this out. I wish I'd been rereading The Sandman at that time so that I would have been prompted to, to do it. But uh, What was your favorite panel? Um, my favorite panel is not far off from that, actually. Um, on page five, which is the splash panel, 
where we get the credits and we get the title of the issue. Um, but it isn't the lower panel, which uh, I do like a lot, but it's actually the middle panel of the triptych at the top. And it's when we see the long man of Wilmington, uh, good old uh, Wendell here opening <laughs> his door. And I just love this. And it's one of the things I love about kind of magical realism um, kind of fiction is take the thing that everyone kind of takes for granted and has been there in this case for hundreds of years and just alter it just so to like, you know, completely where, you know, it's a figure who is holding what looks like two long poles. What if that's just the outline of a door? Um, and then the way that a really simple kind of comic book form of action lines to show the arm moving from one side of the door to have both hands on a different side of the door to be able to open it. Then it's just, it's very well done where you there see like additional disturbances in the grass to show the kind of white looking soil underneath. And it's just, it's fun to imagine. And I have not been there, but if I ever, you know, were to go there, I would imagine that I just sit, spend time staring at it and imagining what it'd be like for the real long man to suddenly make that movement and to open up a giant piece of earth to open a land to fairy for things then to spill out of. And I just, I really like how effective that is uh, given how simple it is, but also some really nice vibrant greens going on there and some really nice um, um, shading um, there as well. Yeah. This is a beautiful sequence too. In fact, it was my runner up. It was the thing I was, I was almost going to, to pick as well. It's really awesome. I have questions about this panel and then also actually the description of this, that dream gives us that we should talk about. But I guess the real question that I have is, is the door, is he pushing in the door or is he pulling the door out towards him and towards us? I think he is pulling the door out and rolling it back. Which I guess in terms of sp spending a lot of time playing D&D &D recently, um, thinking about how uh, that means that we could blockade the door from our side um, more easily than they could blockade <laughs> the door from theirs. That's, that's, yeah, that's where I wanted to go with this because the line that we get here, you know, Dream doesn't say uh, uh, we you know, we need to open the door. Well, he does say, Wendell, open your door. But he explains to Shakespeare that the audience, the fairies, are waiting on the other side of the hill, needing only the unclosing of a portal to make their, their way to us. Meaning he's not describing this as, as an opening, he's describing it as an unclosing, meaning that from this side, from the perspective of Earth, this portal is closed, meaning we closed it. So there's some cool backstory there. Yes, there definitely is some cool backstory where we or someone else maybe who existed before um, closed it. Because as he said, before not just the Normans, but before the humans came to that land, uh, something else used that space as an amphitheater. And the implication is that maybe it was the fair folk, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was some <laughs> other thing um, that at some point did close the space. Um, and maybe Wendell is actually still a remnant of that long lost civilization of non-human beings that, uh, that existed here. Yeah. Lots of, lots of possibilities there, right? It's, I mean, we assume that this door opens directly to fairy, but we don't know that, right? It could open to someplace else that they've, they've traveled through. Yeah. Lots of, uh, un unanswerable world building questions about these panels that, uh, it makes it a lot of fun. And uh, I will note, um, and we may cover it in a future episode of this podcast, but it is not part of Sandman continuity. So certainly if you do want to enjoy more of the mixture of Charles Vess 
his art along with Neil Gaiman's uh, writing, um, then um, Stardust is uh, excellent if you have not already checked it out. Um, the, the movie is fair, but the comic is excellent. And we may do that someday if our uh, Patreon supporters decide we should. I mean, that someday may be 2037, but uh, it'll, be, it'll be on our radar for sure. Well, I think now that we are uh, are looking ahead at least a decade and a half to other <laughs> gaming stories we should do, I think uh, I think that's going to do it for this one. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. Please come on over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, I think this is probably going to end up being our longest episode yet and might end up being our longest episode ever. And we had a lot of questions about the world, about the the world building, how things work. Uh, We would love to hear your thoughts about those questions as well. And uh, you'll probably hear more of us discussing this a lot when we do our wrap-up in a couple episodes. Um, there are some uh, couple changes in the recent audiobook release, recent in our time of recording this, uh, that we will talk about in uh, that wrap-up as well. Um, but next time, uh, we have the last issue in this particular collection, um, entitled Facade. And until then, pleasant dreams. Pleasant dreams.